enjoy those videos as much as I do. Every week I come and I can't believe how the talented people we have right here. We are, if you're just joining us here today for the first time, welcome to The Well at STSA. We're in the middle of a series called Identity Crisis, which as you saw right there, we got a, uh, as you saw in the video right there, is a little James Bond kind of a theme going on in preparation for the new 007 movie coming out. But the search that we are on is much more important than anything James Bond ever found in his life. Because what we are on is a search for ourselves, who we are, identity crisis, the search for me. We're trying to discover who our true, or what our true identity is and what we were made to be and live like. And we talked about last week, there is no more important fact than who you are, your identity, because your identity drives everything that you do in life. Every behavior that you do is driven by who you think that you are. And the example that I gave last week is very simple. If I have a child and I tell that child, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, he's probably not going to be very motivated to study for the SATs. He's probably not going to be very motivated to say, I can make it to medical school or law school or preschool or whatever the, the top of the top is, okay? Because of who he believes that he is. Well, the same is true spiritually. What we're trying to discover here is who are we in Christ? And what we agreed last week is when it comes to our identity, there are many opinions... But we don't need opinions. We need facts. Because my parents gave me their opinion as to who I am. My boss gives me his opinion as to who I am. My wife loves to give me her opinion as to who I am. Okay? We hear many opinions as to who we are. We tell ourselves who we are. We need to know the truth is who are we truly. Last week we looked at the first characteristic of, of our identity is that we are a new creation. And we looked at this verse right here, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is our theme verse for this series. Because what this verse tells us, as we talked about last week, is that every one of us was born and then born again. Every one of us was created and then recreated. Generated and then regenerated. And that's what we believe about in Christ means. That's what Jesus spoke about, the famous expression of born again, born again, born again. The expression born again Christian doesn't make any sense, to be honest, because you cannot be Christian unless you are born again. And what we saw last week is what does that mean and what does that look like? That I was born from my father and mother on this earth, and then I was born again from my spiritual father and my spiritual mother, and I was born again or recreated in Christ. And the example that we gave last week is the butterfly example. Y'all remember that? Okay, as a caterpillar is created, then he goes into a cocoon and he is recreated. Okay, same caterpillar, butterfly, but completely different caterpillar, butterfly. Same with us in Christ. We are created and then through the waters of baptism, the mystery of baptism, we are recreated into something new. And what we're going to look at beginning today for the next four weeks is some characteristics and I told you all, this is not an all-inclusive list. I'm not talking about everything that we are. Because I told you, the New Testament has 140 in Christ you are. In Christ you have. In Christ. I'm not going to talk 140. I'm going to choose four characteristics. And of those four characteristics, the one I'm going to talk about today is the most important of them all. It is the one that defines us more than any other of the characteristics that we're going to talk about. 
And this is going to make logical sense to us if we think scientifically here. Okay, so put on your scientific minds right here and let me walk you through some science, okay? All the, the people who are into science, whenever I start talking science, they go, they cringe because they know I usually don't say what's right. But watch me on this one. Because this is not just based on science. This is also based on a movie I just saw. Have you seen Jurassic, Park, Jurassic World? Who just saw Jurassic World? Okay, very good. Okay, so not that many people have seen it. Okay, anytime you uh, hear me talking about movies a lot, you know I was on a plane recently. Because on a plane, I do two things. I work, and then I watch movies. So I work until I get nauseous, then I watch movies the rest of the way. So I just watched this movie Jurassic World. Okay, but if you've seen Jurassic Park, I think it's the same concept, but I don't really remember. In the movie Jurassic World, there's basically a big, bad, scary dinosaur who's on the loose. Okay, I know. Similar to the first, the first one. But there's this tough guy who's trying to catch him. Okay, and he is like your prototypical tough guy. As I was watching, I felt like I was looking in the mirror. Okay, as I'm watching this right here. And he asked the people who produced the dinosaur, because obviously it wasn't produced naturally. It was produced in a lab. Okay, they, they brought, you know, whatever together to make this dinosaur. And he kept asking the most important characteristic I need to know to catch this dinosaur is what? What's the most important thing? If you want me to catch him and basically predict his behavior, then tell me about his source. Tell me where he came from. Tell me what kind of dinosaur, like you mixed a dinosaur part to another dinosaur part, okay? And then you made this dinosaur, okay? An X and a Y and a Z and whatever it may be. Okay, you mixed certain things together to create this dinosaur. Tell me the mother dinosaur or the father. Tell me all the parts that, give me the origin. Give me the source and then I can predict the behavior of the dinosaur. This is logical sense for us, right? If someone says, I got a new dog. Oh, what kind of dog is it? Well, because I don't really care about the dog. I care about the origin of the dog. It was, you know, a half uh, lab and a half uh, other dog, okay? German Shepherd, okay? What, what dictates the identity of this is who the mother was and who the father is, okay? If I have a seed right here and I say, I wonder what kind of plant. Okay, where did the seed come from? The mother seed. Does this make sense? And this applies as well to human beings. When a child is first born, when my son Michael was born, January 26, 2005, many people came to visit him in the hospital. And many people said, I want to go take a picture of that kid, and I want to talk to that kid, and I want to googly that kid, and all that kinds of stuff. Why? Because of him. They walked, they were just passing by at Fairfax Hospital, and they said, you know what? He's the cutest of all the kids right there, so I want to talk to that kid. That kid's identity was based on me. Like, they loved him because they loved me. They wanted to talk to him because they wanted to talk to me. Not talk to him, but they wanted to see him because they wanted to see me. As a child, a newborn child, your identity is based on who your father and your mother, your origin, or your source. If you don't believe that the origin of a child, I'm sorry, the identity of a child is based on their parents, go ask Michael Jordan's son if his identity is affected by who his parents are. Go ask uh, President Obama's kids if their identity is determined by who their parents are. Go ask, I don't know who the Prince, Prince Charles when I was a kid, or Prince Harry or Henry or whatever his name is. Go ask Prince Henry's kids if his, their identity is based on who their parents are. And what you will discover is that while you are your own person, who your parents are determines who you are. Agree with me so far? I didn't say nothing wrong so far, right? Watch this. John 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then he clarifies what that means, children of God. Children born not just of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We're going to talk about here today is your most important characteristic of your identity. Now that you are a new creation, it's who your source is where the origin is. And the origin for your new creation is God himself. And while we, in this whole series, okay, this whole series, we are talking about things that we talked about last week are invisible but real. Okay? Invisible but real. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. Just because I can't see myself being born of God doesn't mean I'm not born of God. Just like because I can't look in your ear and see your brain doesn't mean you don't have a brain. It just means that my eyes, I don't have the proper tool to see your brain. But someone with the proper tool 
can look in your ear and see your brain. Well, if you had the proper spiritual tool, if you had the proper spiritual eyes, you could look at someone before and after and see a new creation. And that's what we have to believe and hold on to, that we are a new creation in Christ. And the number one characteristic of that new creation is that we are born of God. We are children of God. Our primary identity, I am a son, not a Michael Jordan, not a President Obama, not of the King of England. I am a son of the great King of the universe. Based on that statement, based on that verse, I want to go one big idea of what does that mean, then I want to try to break it down in three practical applications. One big idea. Here's the big idea. As a child of God, my identity is based on who he is, not who I am. As a child of God, my identity is based on who he is, not on who I am. You may go to England, and you may see a whole bunch of little kids, and they may all look the same, Here's a child of the king, and there's a child of a servant of the king. And there's a child of a homeless guy right there. They may all look the same. They may all be playing the same game. They may all be in the same English class. They may be all looking, whatever, the same. But they are not the same. They are not the same. Their identity is different. They are different because of who their parents are. Even though they may all be the same, they're not the same. Because their identity is not based on who they are as much as it is based on who their parents are. The same is true of us. You walk around in this world, and there are people, we all look the same. We all look the same. You walk around, we all look the same. All have the same ups and downs, problems and struggles. We all look the same. But we must never forget that our identity is eternally different than the rest of the world. Eternally different. Our identity in Christ is that we are children of the great king. And no matter, even if we look the same on the outside, we know that on the inside, we are different. These children right here, these children all playing together. This one, they're all playing in the sand. But this one, you don't realize it, but you are rich, son. How am I rich? Because your father is rich. You are powerful. How are you powerful? Because your father is powerful. You have authority. How do you have authority? Because your father has authority. Well, we as children of the great king have the same. We may look the same as everyone else. But I am rich, and I am eternally rich. Why? Because my father is eternally rich. I have power, and I have authority, and I have strength, and I have joy, and I have hope, and I have all these things. Why? Not because of me but because my father has all these things and I am my father's son. Watch this verse. I'll show you a great verse. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5. This is a little orphan Annie verse for you right here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That we might receive adoption as sons. That key word there is the word adoption. What's the difference between an adopted child and a natural child. What's the difference? An adopted child versus a natural child. What's the difference? The difference is one is by grace, what another is by nature. One is by grace, what another is by nature. The natural child was born a natural child, and they're by their nature, like they have everything that they inherit everything by their nature. An adopted child was not born rich, was not born into the wealth was not born into the power. But at some point in time, the father looked out over the crowd and said, you, I adopt you into my family. You were not born into my family. You were born out there. And you are not rich. And you are not powerful. Actually, you're weak and you're, and you're sinful and you got all kinds of stuff. But I choose you and I bring you into my family. So everything that my natural son has, I give to you. He by nature, you by grace. That's why I say it's a little orphan antiverse. 50 years down the road, maybe not 50 years, five years down the road, little orphan Annie, no one could tell that she's adopted. She has everything that the natural kids had. But she knows that it's not because of her, but it's because of him who adopted her. Re verse goes on, verse 6. And because you are sons, adopted sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Did you catch that one? Because you are sons, he sent forth the spirit of his son into you. Because what he is by nature, you've been given by grace. That you may cry out, Ava, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What I want to look at here today, this topic, if this doesn't get you excited, something's wrong with it. 
to know that you are a child. And by the way, I'm, I'm using the word son, son, daughter. Don't get tripped up on it. Okay, child. But son is more powerful to me than child. But I'll kind of use them. But daughter, don't, don't. You are a son. And what God, the Father, gave to his son by nature because he's his son, he has said to you, come, be adopted into this family. Another, another uh, uh, picture that the, that the New Testament draws for us is a vine grafted in to the, 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 the stem or the root. Okay, so uh, here's a tree and it has all these branches. And then I see this poor little pathetic branch over there. And I bring that branch in and I graft it in. I tie it in so that a year from now, two years from now, someone would come and they'd never even know there was a difference. But I know that this branch did not deserve it and did not own it and did not earn it by any means. But because the Father loved it, brings you in and says, everything that the natural branch has is now yours as well. What I want to look at here today is what does this mean practically? Because you have been given the spirit by which you cry, Abba, Father. And you do. You stand up and say, Our Father who art in heaven. And you say that expression, Our Father, and we take that for granted. We take it for granted because we say it a bazillion times a day. We take it for granted. What does it mean? That I can look at the creator of the universe and say, Not sir, not master, not thou, but I can say daddy. What does that mean? Three applications for that. Maybe you've never thought about what that means. But I'm telling you, that idea of I can call God my father. See, here's the problem. For some of us, I tell you, call God your father, you're adopted as his son. That conjures up negative images. And this is why anytime someone comes to me and talks to me about, you know, I don't trust God. I, I, I don't want anything to do with God. And God hurt me and all this kind of stuff. I always go and say, can I ask about your relationship with your father? And nine out of ten times, people think, like, how'd you know? It's not because I'm very smart. But it's because, whether we like it or not, you associate God, your heavenly father, with your earthly father. And dads, we talk to you dads or future dads, we have a great responsibility, dad. We have a great responsibility because our children will associate the creator of the universe with how we, we are. So when, when people say, I don't trust God will come through on his word. You know why? Because most likely their dad didn't come through on his word. People say, I don't think my dad can forgive me, can love me again. It's because most likely their dad didn't love them or forgive them again. We have a great responsibility right here. But my point here for us, oftentimes we don't think about what it means to be a son of God or a daughter of God. Or we think about it in a negative way. Because being a son in my house meant being a slave, meant being abused, meant being neglected and nobody cares. Well, I'm here to tell you that being a son of God is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And I'll give you three reasons why. But here's what I need to do today. Y'all have to bear with me today. When you talk about something, like what does it mean if you have children? Describe what it's like when you have a child. You can't describe it. Words can't describe the feeling I had when I saw my boy. Okay, when I saw my boy, my wife had a C-section. So when they pulled the boy out of her stomach, it was like an alien movie right there. It was like, boom. And, they pull, and I was like, it's gross, it's nasty, holds him down, whatever it is. And then they brought him to me. And I'm telling you, Marianne, because like I said, she had a C-section, so she was out for two hours after that. Okay, like she had it, she hugged the kid, whatever it is. Five minutes later, she was out. Me and that kid sat in the hallway of Fairfax Hospital. In the hallway. Okay, he sat in the hallway. They were trying to move us from one room to the other. And that two hours was like a minute. Because that's my boy. Words can't describe what it means to have a son. Would you all agree? Sometimes you need to draw a picture. So we're going to look at three pictures today. Because Jesus at one point in time, in Luke chapter 15, drew three pictures for us. He's told us three stories, also called parables, but parables is just a story. He told three stories of what does it mean that you are my son or my daughter and I am your father. We're going to look at each of these three stories and hopefully paint a picture for us of what does it mean for us. The first lesson for us is number one, I am continually accepted, not based on my work, but based on my identity. I am accepted, not based on my work, based on my identity. Show of hands, be honest, confess. How many of you have ever felt at one point or another in your life that you know what? You're just not good enough for God. You're just not good enough. Like you've just gone too far. That, you know what? That, that's pretty much everybody. Okay? We've all been there. I'm not good enough. God is done with me. I've gone too far. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy. We've all felt that way. You know why? Because the world around us is performance-based. Okay, and I'm not trying to change that. That's the way the world is. That's the way if someone perform, what have you done for me lately? You're a great employee, but you ain't done nothing this past year. What have you done for me lately? You're out the door. We're all about value added, aren't we? Value added. What value do you add to my life? What value do you add to my company? But is that how it works with God? Is God a value added God? And he judges us based on what we produce for him? Many of us have this wrong idea about being worthy in front of God, and we base it on our work. And what God is trying to show us today is it's not based on your work, it's based on your identity. The first parable, or the first story, okay, in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is a, is a parable of the story of the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Okay, so first we'll start with the lost sheep. Luke 15, verse 4. Which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. Basically saying, you have a hundred sheep, you lose one of them, you don't just stand there and say, oh well, ninety-nine out of hundred is not bad. You go after that one sheep, and you rejoice when you find it. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, not just he's happy that he found it, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Story needs no explanation. Guy lost his sheep, and most of us might think, okay, what's the value of one sheep? Well, it had tremendous value here. Now, forget about the value of the sheep. I want to ask you a different question. Think of it this way. How do you think the sheep got lost? How do you think the sheep got lost? The guy had 100 sheep. He moved from point A to point B. 99 of them seemed to have no problem. One guy went left. How'd the sheep get lost? Whose fault was it the sheep got lost? The sheep. It's logic. It's the sheep's fault. It can't be the shepherd's fault. I mean, he's, he's 99 out of, a, like 99% says that he was right. And that one dumb little sheep said, no, I think left is the right way. Whose fault is it is the sheep got lost? It's the sheep's fault. He's a dumb sheep. And his own, he deserves it. He deserves it. You know what? You're going to stray. You're not going to follow me. You deserve what you get, man. You deserve to get eaten by the big bad wolf. You deserve to not be able to cross over the river. You deserve it. Everyone would agree. That sheep deserves it. Why would the shepherd go after it then? Simple. Because it's my sheep. Why would the shepherd go after the sheep? Because it's mine. A sheep would be branded. Say, property of whoever. Once that brand is on there, even though he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, he's my not sharpest knife in the drawer. And I'm responsible for him. And I took this job as a shepherd knowing that not all of them are the most clever sheep in the whole wide world. But he's mine. And because he's got my name, because he's got my brand, he's my responsibility. And you know what? I'm going to get him to the other side whether he likes it or doesn't like it. And I will chase after that sheep. And nothing that sheep can do can make me not go after him and chase him. Because in the end, he's just a sheep. Look, I'm going to tell you the best news ever. I'm going to tell you something that when I discovered this, this revelation from God, when I discovered this, it is the most freeing and liberating thing, fact that you will ever know. And I know it doesn't sound like it at first, but trust me, if you really understand what this is, this will be the most freeing thing for you in the whole wide world. And that is this, that I will never be good enough. I will never be good enough. It sounds negative, and it sounds like, no, it gives you nothing to strive for. No, the most freeing thought in the world is to say, I know, God, I will never be good enough in your eyes, but that's not why you love me. That's not why you saved me. That's not why. You didn't do any of those things in or because you knew that I would be good enough one day. I'll never be good enough in God's eyes. And that is so free. See, I remember the beginning of my priesthood. In this job, okay, anyone who's going into this job, there's a very, very serious temptation to become a people pleaser. This job. 
Because you get a performance review. I don't get a performance review. You know what I get? I get people falling asleep. I get people not coming to church. I get people not paying attention. And yeah, it's great. He gave the best sermon in the whole wide world today. But what have you done for me lately? Next Sunday comes around real quick. And there is this temptation when you're in this job. And this, I'm, I'm confessing this happened to me. To say, you know what? I, I, I got to do better. I, 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 you know what? I didn't prepare enough for that sermon. I got to prepare more. I got to prepare more. I didn't visit enough people this week. I got to visit more people. You know what? This person needs help. I got to go help that person. And I got to be there. And I got to be there. And I got to be there. And I got to be good enough. Not because it's about the people. But because about God, God ordained me as a priest. I say, you know, what? I want to do a good job. So I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do better. I got to do better. This, what I'm saying, is a recipe for a disaster. This is a recipe for a disaster. And I still remember when I came to the realization. I came to the realization that nothing I will ever do will make me good enough in God's eyes. But that's not why he loves me. He doesn't love me because of who I am. Doesn't mean because of who he is. My identity as a child of God is not because of me, but because of him. And once you realize that, I remember one time specifically, I'm preparing for a sermon. I used to do this probably for, it's probably like a three or four year period. I used to do this every time I give any sermon. Every single time, I used to remind myself of this. I'd say, okay, God, if I give the best sermon in the whole wide world, like I knock this sucker out of the park. Like people are crying and cheering at the same time. Like, I knocked this one out. Will you love me anymore? God says, no. I say, okay, God, what if I bomb and I'm a disaster? And people leave, okay, like during the talk. Not even that someone comes and rips the microphone and says, enough with you. Will you love me any less? And God says, no. Okay. Now I'm ready. Now I realize where I belong. That I'm accepted not by my work, but by my identity. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved. There's that word grace again. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When little orphan Annie is doing the chores in Big Daddy Warbuck's house, she does not think for one second that if I make my bed and I clean the basement, I will have earned my place here in Big Daddy Warbucks' house. She will never think that in a million years. She will always remember I am an orphan and I have been adopted, grafted in by the grace of my father. And now, because I am accepted, I will work. Not I will work in order to gain acceptance. I will work because I have been accepted. And there's a big difference between the two. And if you don't believe it, go find me a child who believes that he has to earn his parents' acceptance, he has to earn their approval, and you see where that child goes, versus one who knows he is approved of, and knows he is accepted, and then voluntarily, willingly says, it is my greatest desire to work for my father, and to give myself to my father. We don't work for approval, we work from approval. We don't work for acceptance, we work from acceptance. Church reminds us of that every time we say the prayer of thanksgiving which is a prayer in our church, we begin every service with a prayer of thanksgiving. And we stand and we actually repeat it twice in the same prayer, that we give thanks to God because he has covered us, he has helped us, he has guarded us, and he has, say it with me, he has accepted us to himself. He has accepted us. Warts and all. Number one, I am continually accepted. Nothing I can do can make God accept me more and less. Okay, it's infinity. Add 100 to infinity, still infinity. Subtract a million from infinity, still infinity. God is infinity. Number two, as a child of God, I am relentlessly pursued by my Father in heaven. I am relentlessly pursued by my Father in heaven. First parable, was the par or first story, was the story of the lost sheep. Guy at 100, lost one, goes after it. That kind of logically makes sense to us. A sheep has value. Okay, he went after it. The second story is a lot funnier. It's the story of the lost coin. Watch this one. Luke 15, 8. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
this is a little bit funny. This is saying you got 10 quarters in your pocket, and you're about to head out to the house, at the house. And all of a sudden, you stick your hand in your pocket, you realize, oh, there's only nine quarters. What do you do? You keep going out of the house. You don't care. It's just a quarter. Even if it's a dollar, even if it's a $2 bit, like whatever. You keep going. What does this lady do? Says, nope, cancel the day's plans. She cancels the day's plans. She lights a lamp, turns all the lights on the house, sweeps everything, moves the furniture, looks in the cushions, outside the cushions, and then she has to wait until she finds the quarter. You say, that's funny. I say, you haven't even seen the funny part yet. Watch this. And when she has found it, watch what she does. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Imagine that, knocking on your neighbor's doors and saying, look what I found. Look, it's the quarter that I lost 10 minutes ago. It's here. And she calls all her friends. That's funny. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who in the right mind would turn a house upside down for a quarter? God would. But not for a quarter. Who's the quarter? Who's the worthless little, eh, one in a million? Or not one, I mean, one of a million, I should say. Who's the, yeah, they're all pretty much the same. Yeah, you got a whole bunch of them. Who cares? Who's that? That's me. That's his son. Go back. One of my favorite things to remember. Go back to the very beginning when man was first lost. First time man was ever lost. Genesis chapter 3. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, gave them everything that they needed. Said, y'all, y'all stay here. Do whatever you want over here. Don't touch this one tree. And they said, okay, God, can you repeat the rules? Yep, yeah, just this one tree. They said, okay, what about the other, other trees? You're fine. Don't touch this one tree. All the trees are fine. Give you everything that you want. No problem. Don't touch this one tree. God turned around. What did they do? That's the one tree. Has to be. Has to be. If you, if you have children, you know it has to be. They go to that one tree. They go to that one tree and said lightly, they really messed everything up. They didn't just mess up the day. They didn't just mess up their own life. The universe today is messed up because of what they did. After that, what did God do after they messed up? Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. After they ate, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So on top of they messed up the world, they brought sin and death and famine and plague, all this stuff in the world. They left the home and they realized no clothes. Okay, so really it's just a rough day. Okay. They realized, oh no, they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Watch how the situation gets worse right now. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's the worst part of that story? Parents, what makes you sad if you're God, Adam, and Eve are your kids? What makes you sad? Their sin led to what? First time in the world we see this emotion. Huh? Shame? Okay, but even, yeah, more. Fear. They're scared. Because all of a sudden, the only thing I can liken this to, you ever, when, maybe when we were kids, when you were a kid, like been lost in an amusement park? I remember that being lost at King's Dominion, being all of a sudden like, oh no, I lost my parents. It's the worst feeling in the whole wide world. It's the worst feeling in the whole wide world. And you're surrounded by people and you just, that's how Adam and Eve were. You really messed this thing up. And as a father, I don't ever want my kids to be scared, to be afraid. And who are they afraid of? Of God. Like really, this is a bad situation. This is pretty low. And they're hiding from God. What does God do next? What does God do next? What would you do next? You gave them one rule. Not like you gave them, like, uh, uh, they had to memorize uh, uh, the periodic uh, el table of elements. Not like they had to clean the whole, like, it just had one thing. And they messed that up. What would you do if you're God? Leave them? Move on? Create another human being? Go play with the angels? What would you do? Let me show you what God does. Verse 9. As they're hiding, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? 
Now, the story goes on, and I'm sure most of us have, have read that story. And God tells them, you did this wrong, so this is your punishment. You did this wrong, this was God, all this stuff. I'm not worried about that. Verse 9 is the most important verse in the whole Bible to me. You know why? Because this is when salvation began. Because here's God. There they are hiding. And God could have easily said, you know what? I'm done. Move on. But God pursued them. And God says, where are you? Obviously, God knew where Adam was. Okay, hiding behind a little fig tree. You're going to stop you from being seen by the king of the universe. But God said, Adam, come here. And Adam is hiding. And they're scared. And God says, come here. And God is chasing man, even though man should be chasing God. Like man is the one who should be, like Adam should be, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. But that's not how it works. God is the one who said, come here, Adam. I'm looking for you. And I'm going to have a talking talking to you. But I do that because I love you. I want to save you. And this began God's relentless pursuit of you. Happened right here. And God's relentless pursuit of you brought you to this right here, right here, right now. Why would God turn the world upside down? Which he did. The same way that lady with the coin turned the house upside down for the sake of one person. You know why? As a father, as a father, my success is tied into my son's success. Would you agree with that? Like if you see my son, regardless of what he's done, regardless of you say, well, he's good or he's bad, if you see him dying in the street of starvation, you would say, I messed up as a dad. Would you agree? Regardless, like let's say, no, I could say, no, he's bad. You say, come on, man, you're supposed to raise him. You say, no, he disobeyed me. You're supposed to, like, it's your responsibility to teach him right and wrong. My success is tied into my son's success. If my son fails to succeed, I am a failure. And by the same token, any father would agree that my joy and my pride is that my son is better than me. That's what I want. I have this degree. I want my son to have a better degree. I have this kind of life. I want my son to have a better life. Like everything that I have, I want my son to have better than me. Once I put my name on the boy and I put my name on the back of his jersey, and he has my name on him, then he is mine forever, and I am invested in his success. The same is true for God with us as human beings. Once God says, you are my son, I, I, I give birth to you, I create you, I recreate you. Once he says that, then he is invested in our success, and ultimately it is his own success that is determined by our success. Even though not really, because God obviously is successful, but you know what I'm trying to say. Said another way, there's never a point where God says, you're too far, you're too bad, you're too lost, you're not worth enough for me. There's never a point because you have his name. And once you have his name, then he wants to make you successful. And like I said, some of you, the reason why you're here today is because of God's relentless pursuit. And you don't even know why you're here. You're just here because God just kind of works something in your life and you think so-and-so invited you and you don't know why you've gotten invited to church a bazillion times and you don't know why you came today. Well, I'm telling you why you came today. Because God is screaming out to you like he did to Adam. Where are you? And yes, there's repentance, and we have to correct the mistake right here, and yes, you have to repent, and like all that kind of stuff. But in the end, you're my son or my daughter, and because you are my son or my daughter, you have my name on you, then I will continue to pursue you. And I will never let you go. No matter how bad you've been or how far you've gone, there's always a way back. And that leads us to our third and final lesson from being a son, is that I am preemptively forgiven because I am a son or a daughter. I am preemptively forgiven. Meaning, I am forgiven even before. Last story. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We had the lost sheep, lost coin, and the last one is the lost son. And then, also famously known as the prodigal son, okay? We won't read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but just some of the highlights here. starts this way. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Most people call this the story of the prodigal son, okay? And you can say that. I like lost son better, but that's okay. 
What does prodigal mean? So, sometimes we think prodigal means like bad or rebellious. He was the prodigal son, meaning he was the rebellious son or the bad son. That's not what prodigal actually means. Prodigal actually means like wasteful or lavish or excessive. And that's why they call him the prodigal son because he was prodigal with his living. He received all the money from his father, the inheritance, and then he just wasted it. So he was wasteful. He was excessive, like he was lavish. That's what it means by he was the prodigal son. This boy was prodigal with money. But the question that I have for you is, where did he learn to be so prodigal from? You know where he learned? From his father. Because his father was also pr very prodigal, but not with money. Fast forward the story. The son realizes he made a mistake, and the son comes back. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. Watch the prodigal, excessive, wasteful now. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even listen to what the son said. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Look, I'm all about second chances. I'm all about compassion and all that kind of stuff. That's great. This is too much. You're not going to find this in any parenting book. No parenting book is going to say that when your son asks for the inheritance and in essence spits in your face and goes out and takes all your inheritance, and how does he invest your inheritance that you worked your entire life for? He squanders it. He squanders it all. And then he comes back to you. No parenting book will tell you to do this. He ran to him. He hugged him. He kissed him. He got a robe. He got a ring. He got new sandals, which is a big deal. And he got the fattest calf. And he had that sucker slain, and they threw a party for him. I'm not trying to talk about what the dad did, because that speaks for itself. But I want to just ask you a different question. The father forgave the son, correct? When did he forgive? When did he forgive? When he came back? When he confessed? When he apologized? When he made uh, amends to his problem? When he made restitution, he turned the money? When did he forgive him? before he was even born. This child was forgiven before he was even born. I'll tell you how I know. Because you as parents, you did the same thing. You as parents, you had a child, and I'm telling you in advance, you have a child, and that child is not going to be on his best behavior, especially early on. He's going to cry. He's going to spit. He's going to poop on himself, maybe on yourself. What do you say as a parent? No, I can't accept it. Okay, if he apologizes, then I'll forgive him. What do you say as a parent? You say, I know what he is going to do, and I'm saying in advance, before he is born, I forgive him. I am choosing to forgive my child before my child has even committed the sin. That's what the father did. And that's what our father does. And actually, I said the child and the poop and the spit, our father in heaven knows you will ignore him. You will reject him. You, like the prodigal son, will run so far away from him and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. You will curse him. You will tell all your friends about how he is a bad dad and he cannot be trusted. And God knows that. And God knew that. And God said, I preemptively forgive you. Because before you were born, I died for you. Psalm 103, verse 13, says, As a father pities his children. Pities like compassion, not pity in the battle. As a father has compassion or pity on his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. Why? Because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You are forgiven, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. You are accepted, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. You are pursued, not because of who you are, but because who he is. That's what it means to be a son or a daughter. It means that I am given by grace 
what he has by nature. I said in the beginning that nothing should make you more excited than that. What's the hardest part of any relationship? What's the hardest part of a relationship where you want to have intimacy with a person is trust. Remember like back in like in junior high, like I want to tell her I like her, but don't tell her because I don't know if she likes me. So you send the spies, okay, to go find out does she like you? You know what I'm saying? Because I don't want to risk liking you if I don't know you like me back. Well, here's the beautiful thing about God. He's removed the risk. He's removed the entire risk. He says, before you've done anything, I accept you. Before you have even looked in my direction, I pursued you. And before you've even uttered the word sorry, before you've even made the mistake, I've forgiven you. No risk. No risk. You know what that makes me say? That makes me say what John the Beloved, the closest one to Jesus, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Here's a good memory verse for you. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Again, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And you got to read that excited. You know why? Because there's an exclamation mark at the end. And when you see an exclamation mark in Scripture, you don't think like exclamation mark like when we do in emails and Twitter on Facebook, which is like, hello, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. How are you, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Not like that. When the, Bible, when, when the Bible throws an exclamation mark, it means get excited. Especially when this particular author, you know who the author is here? Is John the Beloved. He was, who's John the Beloved? John the Beloved is like, guys, just love. You know what I mean? Like, just love. You know, like he was like the easy guy. Like Peter was the fiery guy and say, Paul, and stuff. John was just love. And he was leaning on Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, but here he gets pumped up. You get this quiet guy, you get him pumped up, and he says, why am I pumped up? Because you don't realize, I'm a child of God. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? It means that no matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter how far, I am branded. This is son of God. And because I'm his son, I'm always welcome in his home. And because I'm his son, it's not based on what I do, it's based on who he is. Because I'm his son, I have infinite value and infinite worth. I'm a son of my father. And that's what it means. Last story. Last story. And this is not a Bible story. This is a true story. Some maybe y'all heard me tell this story before. Once upon a time, I was, at, I was away at another church, visiting another church several years ago. And I was um, getting ready to go up on stage, okay, and, 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 and give a talk. And just kind of like right here, like we began with songs, okay, and just like I, I, have, like I have my routine. I will stand right there, okay, and I prepare myself. Okay, then I come up here and give. So as I'm standing over there, it wasn't here, it was far away. As I'm standing over there, we're singing the songs. Okay, and I'll tell you the story, like from the end, okay, like all the facts I knew at the end. I didn't know it all at the time, but I later found out. People stood up to sing. Right around in this section right here, there was a kid in a wheelchair who was probably about 15, 16 years old. And his dad was next to him. Okay, and I, again, later discovered, didn't know at the time, that the kid was handicapped, okay, clearly, he was blind, and he was deaf. Okay, and I don't know what caused it, but he was blind, deaf, and, and, and handicapped. He couldn't walk, okay? Tough situation. Music started. Everyone stands up. People start to sing. The boy's sitting in the wheelchair. The dad stands up. And what happened next? Sometimes I even ask myself, is that real or not real? What happened next? The man stood up. And he wanted the boy to stand up too. So he kind of bends down and bear hugs the boy. And he lifts him up. And the boy can't talk, can't see, can't do nothing. And the man starts to do like this. And the man is singing as if he's in heaven. He's got his son in his arms. And he's singing, I don't know what we're singing, we're singing. And he's carrying the boy. And at that moment in time, That boy adds no value to that man's life. Forgive me. I know this sounds insensitive, but I'm just trying to make a point, so don't, don't think I'm saying this. That boy is a burden on his dad. That boy is a burden. He adds no value. He has no worth. He has negative worth, to be honest. But man, you couldn't tell it. When you were looking at the dad, dad was like he was in heaven, and he was singing away, 
and he was smiling, and probably his arms were hurting, his back was hurting, like the kid, kid was a big kid, and he's just in heaven, and at that moment in time, that was God. That's, you know the word Emmanuel? God is with us, that was God with us. Because that's who Jesus is for us. That's who our Father in heaven is for us. We're worthless. I'm telling you, that boy, worthless, again, forgive me, I don't mean it in that way, you know what I'm trying to say. No value. But in his father's arms, in his father's eyes. That one fact, believe me, just believe me on this one. Understanding that one fact can change your life. Believe me, it changed mine. And I've seen it change other people's lives. When it clicks, when you get it. My identity is not based on me. It's based on him. And I'm continually accepted. I am relentlessly pursued. And I'm preemptively forgiven. From now to the end of all eternity. One time someone told me, I don't love God enough. I don't love God enough. I don't love God enough. And I told this to this person. I said it ever since then. There's no such thing as you don't love God enough. Because you don't know how much God loves you. Because if you know how much God loves you, there's no such thing as I don't love him enough. Because you don't, haven't yet realized how much he loves you. Let's stand up and say a prayer together. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, what words can we say to describe your love thank you for your love, to thank you for the sonship that you have given to us. Lord, you are not in need of our sonship. We are the ones who need your fatherhood and your lordship. We ask you, Lord, to like take your love, which is beyond words and beyond comprehension, and like plant the seed of it inside our hearts to understand who we are in your eyes. Even though we'll never understand it, Lord, but just to let us take another step into understanding it's that we can live based on that love. That we can live as sons and daughters and know our place in this world and our place in your heart. Thank you, Lord, for your great love. Lord, if we, if we stood here all day and thanked you, Lord, it wouldn't be enough. There aren't enough thank yous. There aren't enough words in, in the English language to say thank you enough, Lord, for calling us into your family and adopting us into your family but we give you everything that we have, Lord. And we just thank you, Lord, and, and just pray that you would help us to know your love more and more every day and to reflect that love to everyone around us. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the prayers of all your saints. Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.